Hi, I'm your host, Laura Hersher, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed, where today we are going to do some future gazing, which is always dangerous, but today we have a great guide who has spent much of his career thinking about what medicine will look like in the future. My guest today, Dr. Eric Topol, is technically, he's a cardiologist. I mean, technically, he's perhaps the most influential cardiologist in the country. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. And yet, I don't really think of you as a cardiologist. I think of you as a futurist. Well, thanks. I like to think about the future a lot because we got to get better. You know, it's kind of unidirectional. <laughs> well, hopefully it's that's the direction. I haven't found it so in my life so far, but hopefully. Um, so you are the director and the founder of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, the current occupant of the Gary and Mary West Endowed Chair in Innovative Medicine, the author of several books on the future of medicine, the latest of which, Deep Medicine, brings you here today. I really enjoyed Deep Medicine. Congratulations on the book. Oh, thanks very much. And, much appreciate. Yeah, it's about the use of artificial intelligence in medical care. Um, so one thing that struck me overall about the book is that it's so profoundly optimistic. Do you feel you're like a profoundly optimistic person? Well, I think... Uh, I like to think I, I try to find the bright side, but I did try to uh, admix all the negatives. I mean, I think the balance is definitely a positive one. If we seize the opportunity, that's a big if. But, uh, you know, I think that's going to require uh, a lot of activism. It's certainly possible that things could be made worse uh, by AI in the, in the future of medical care. So, a unique, uh, uh, only uh, positive perspective. Yeah. No, I didn't mean to suggest that you didn't, didn't, because the book is full of caution. But that was the spirit that I felt from it, that it was saying like, look, you, you guys, there's reasons to be scared, but profoundly this can provide us with a better world with better health care. And so let's, let's, let's talk about some of the examples that you're really excited about. I think like, on the on the in the area of low hanging fruit, you really point to radiology first. That that makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, I think when there's patterns like scans, on slides, uh, eye grounds, and things like that are just so well suited. That's kind of the sweet spot right now because uh, you can train machines to see things humans can't see or will never be able to see. So it complements uh, so much what a radiologist or a pathologist or um, ophthalmologist, so many specialties that really rely on patterns. It really helps them particularly. Yeah. How much of that is here now? Like how, how long do you think it is before uh, the, the, the best care is having your scans read by machines and not by people? Is that true today? Yeah, no, it's actually taking hold. Uh, it depends on the place. Uh, you know, like in the U.S., we're not quite as up on everything as other places. So, you know, I think the China has already implemented this quite a bit for radiology scans. Uh, the U.K. is on it. Uh, the U.S. is a little bit behind, but it's starting to take hold. Um, and I think, you know, we'll see pretty quickly this will become the norm over the next couple of years for this particular application, that is augmenting 
the human performance of, of, of doctors in interpreting particularly uh, medical scans. Pathologists are a bit behind because they haven't really gone digital uh, overall. Uh, and actually, of all, uh, surprisingly, you know, eye doctors are kind of leading the charge. Uh, they, they tend to get uh, not as much appreciated uh, in terms of what they're doing compared to radiologists. But, uh, you know, well, now you can start to see where people will diagnose their retinal conditions through smartphones, and that's already happening uh, in Africa. <laughs> but how, so, does that, how, does that, how does that work? How does that work? Well, uh, so diabetics uh, um, who are getting their checkups, um, they typically don't get screened for uh, retinopathy, which is one of the most important causes preventable blindness. Uh, at least half of them never get screened. So people with diabetes uh, are really missing out, uh, and that's not likely they're going to get to uh, an ophthalmologist if their primary care doctor uh, doesn't uh, even get to this uh, problem. So now uh, there's the ability to use a smartphone. Uh, this is one of the efforts that University of Michigan has put forth. And um, actually take pictures, pictures of your retina and then using AI determine if there's any diabetic retinopathy and what severity it is. And it's, a, it's, it's terrific because that can be applied everywhere. Uh, and already, you know, just this week, there was a, a, a paper published uh, using this type of technology in Africa uh, in places that never would have a, uh, this type of screening. So one of the great aspects of AI that a lot of people don't appreciate is that using these tools, this is basically software algorithms, we could actually reduce inequities of healthcare around the world. It could make them worse, too. I mean, I don't want to get the sense that it's a one, one direction, but that we're getting the, the parts of the um, world that is behind uh, technology to give them you know, this level playing field, and that, that's exciting. Yeah, I, 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 I think that that, that question of, of where does it bring us in uh, does it does it increase or decrease inequities or or both? I think we're going to start there, and I think we're also going to end up there. But I'm 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 very intrigued by this idea of retinas. I keep thinking like you know they say the eyes are the windows to the soul, but it turns out like they turn out to be the windows to something else instead, right? You know, like they're um, yeah yeah. Well, I think that it's going to be really interesting because you know one of the fascinating aspects about uh, what AI has done with this black box lack of explainability is if you present pictures of the retina uh, to international leading authority retinal experts, they can't tell if, it, if it's coming from a male or a female. And obviously, there are other better ways to determine gender. <laughs> However, uh, machines have already been trained to do that with 97%, 98% accuracy. Which That's crazy. Not, yeah, and that basically uh, conveys how there are ways to train an algorithm that picks up features that humans can't see. And, you know, that's just going to be built upon because this is just still the early days of is there, deep learning. Is there, so I'm easily lost when it comes to computer science aspect of this. Is there a difference when we talk about AI I think of it as having the ability to learn as opposed to a computer program that you, you know, you can purchase very complicated computer programs, but like a learning program. Is that the right distinction or am I misunderstanding it? 
No, that's that's absolutely right, Laura. I think the the main difference now and why this is heated up so much in terms of the potential and the excitement is that deep learning is taking hold whereby, you know, these could be thousands of layers of artificial neurons that distinguish these features uh, like never before. So this autodidactic type of capability where these neural nets have insatiable appetite, just can't give them enough data, unlike us humans that are uh, problems of, with early satiety. So <laughs> this is, uh, you know, a really great situation when you are, when you want to do things that we can't do. I mean, we can turn to this, uh, you know, in, in every field, and certainly what's happening even more quickly, of course, in medicine than you know, the, the advances that are occurring in, in science and discovery efforts because they don't require regulatory approval and they're very quickly going to be uh, transformative. So if you're talking about, let's say, it's reading an MRI or it's, it's reading an X-ray, how does it learn? I understand you're, when it's in a training mode, what, they would sh- show it the scan and then it would somehow be counter-checked against the results, so it would say know when it had missed something or I don't understand in, in clinical use, is it continuing to learn? And if so, how does that happen? Yeah, well, you, you start off with the supervised learning where you have these ground truths where let's say it's an MRI and you're interested in, you know, is there a, a, a bleeding uh, in the brain, uh, for example, you feed in hundreds of thousands of images of brain MRIs with this ground truth. And so that's kind of the beginning of this. And then the more scans that you um, are um, putting in as inputs uh, and then asking for other features to be discerned, the more it can expand on that foundation. So unlike in games like AlphaGo and AlphaGo Zero, where it started from scratch. In, in medicine, largely, this has been the basis has been supervised learning. And we're just now getting into unsupervised learning, which is what you're getting to which, in your question, which is letting the machines just start to interpret without ground truth and then validating that what it picked up was indeed accurate. Um, so it's we're right in this transition at the moment where uh, up until now, most studies of medicine have relied on um, supervised learning, but we're starting to see the the pivot. Mm -hmm. Where else do you think is, is the low hanging fruit? Um, Where else do you see AI transforming medicine in the near term? Well, the biggest one, which I think you'll appreciate, uh, because this is such a important part of um, a uh, encounter with patients, is the use of keyboards. That is the liberation from keyboards. So uh, these days, when you see a doctor or you see a genetic counselor or whoever you're seeing, there's often uh, this uh, looking at a screen and keyboard, and obviously uh, that's taking away from the real interaction, um, the real connect between two humans. So that's going to be uh, passe pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it already mm-hmm. started in, in the UK and in China and other places, and it's piloted now in many places in the U.S. because 
with natural language processing, a, a different subtype of AI, you can get beautiful synthetic notes that are far better than the stuff that we typically see in our electronic records. And they're archived, they're edited by the patient, um, you know, and they're machine learned for each doctor, clinician, counselor. So this is going to be a, a welcome change because today so many clinicians are data clerks. And that has to go because that's led to a considerable burnout uh, and even clinical depression. And this will be seen as a, a real uh, striking improvement. So I, I think one of the things I'm listening, I think one of the things that's very seductive and appealing about this book is that it takes two things that are often considered opposing forces, right? Like technology driven medicine and humanistic medicine. I mean, um, the human touch, uh, empathy, what I would say, deep listening, um, which actually are, are things we really stress in genetic counseling, by the way. And it says, uh, these aren't in opposition, the book says. We don't have to choose. One can make us better at the other. This is technology enabling a more hum humanistic medicine. That's a really interesting and exciting concept. I don't know if I always... I don't know. I don't know how easy it will be. Like for an ex for example, to go back to radiology, because you were talking about how, in the book about how when radiologists, uh, yes, their role as the um, visualizers of the scans may come to an end, but they can interpret. They can then step in and provide this human element of being able to interpret and talk about it. And actually, when you were describing that, it reminded me so much of what genetic counselors do, but. One of the reasons genetic counselors do it is that we select for people that like, you, you, you call them tr translators or interpreters of medical information. We like that. And of course, picking radiologists to do that job is kind of hilarious, right? Because historically, people have gone into radiology because they don't want to talk to people. Isn't that the, the cliche? Well, there's a, lot, there's a lot to unpack with what you said. Firstly, <laughs> You really have cracked the case of you know the the whole book as far as the the uh, counterintuitive notion that technology could enhance humanity and all these opposing forces. Uh, I love your term deep listening because that's really what we want to aspire uh, to. That's uh, it's critical. We'll never be able to digitize the patient's story, the patient's life story. It's not going to happen. There's not going to be any AI algorithm that does that. That's a human thing. And we don't listen to patients. You know, uh, uh, I know genetic counselors do, but doctors don't often have the time. And so this is a big problem. Um, that is the gift of time to give it back, turn inward, use all this productivity efficiency to then allow for listening and for the trust to be restored and the care in healthcare to be um, brought back. So now your question about radiologists, I actually uh, talked to a bunch of radiologists because, you know, they have a sense of being vulnerable to some extent mm -hmm. if, if, these, if say, scan readings could be automated. And what's really fascinating is so many of them are tired of living in the dark basement and not seeing patients. That although maybe I, I can't um, uh, tell, speculate uh, fully about why, what attracted them to the field. Uh, maybe it wasn't, they, they didn't want to have the, uh, as much uh, contact with patients. Uh, but clearly, 
this restlessness that they would like that. And in, and indeed, we would benefit because, as in the book where I described the interaction of talk, going to the basement and talking to radiologists about my scans, um, we 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 need to do that more because. These are the honest brokers, the yeah. experts who they don't they don't have a vested interest that a person person has an operation or a procedure. They're just going to tell you what they see, and I, they actually enjoy. They would they would like to have more human interaction. And the other thing is that so many scans are done unnecessarily and lead to incidental findings, and somebody has got to put the brakes on that. And that could be radiologists too. So my prediction is that radiologists will. Uh, come out of the basement more, see more patients, become more, uh, you know, in a gatekeeper role, and overall a real reconfiguration of of their uh, profession. Well, um, and I want to apologize to all the radiologists I offended. Sure, they'd want to come out of the basement, and most of the time when you use that phrase, you're using it metaphorically, but in this case, I think you're being quite literal, right? Like, like literally. Yeah, no, literal. Absolutely literal, right, right. (laughs) Yeah, not to be confused here. Yeah, yeah. So so this this idea of predictive medicine, um, I think to all of us, I mean, to, to most of us in genetics, that's the holy grail, and we're very excited about it, and so on. And then our cautions are, that uh, two things about predictive medicine in big, like just big terms, it's been wrong a lot up till now, right? Like our attempts to predict the future have not by and large gone that well. And there's always the question of, you know, are, are, are we, you know, like the Greek myth question, like if we predict the future, can we actually change the outcome? So I know from the book, and it makes sense to me that you're saying, like, we can get better at predictions, right? Like, we're never going to be perfect, but we can, we can really improve. Speaking specifically about cancer predictions, a very, very big area in AI right now, I have great confidence that uh, they're going to get better at, at finding cancers. Do you... Do you um, think they will also be able to solve the, the false positive question? Because I feel like in cancer predictive testing, that's a bigger question right now. Yeah, no, I think that um, if we use data from multiple uh, modes uh, in cancer, rather than just relying on, you know, one uh, plane, one dimension, yeah, I, there's no question that uh, integrating all the different sources of data for cancer, you know, electronic records, DNA, RNA, um, you know, liquid uh, biopsy work, uh, machine learning of scans and of slides, uh, no less the potential for organoids and other means. Yes, and understanding the whole immune uh, system for that person, the immuno. Again, what you're getting at, I think, is really important. Uh, We uh, whether it's you know like doctors, oncologists, uh, humans in general, experts, we can't deal with all this data uh, in a in a meaningful way because it's it's immense for each person. It's big data, it's enormous, uh, and it's just going to get bigger uh, over time. So I do think that there's going to be a big step forward. It's going to take a little while because there's still resistance to doing. You know, things in cancer like uh, sequencing, you know, point mutations that are still being used and panels and, you know, incomplete assessments, no less all these other um, layers of data. The other thing that I think is really exciting long term, just to mention, 
is that we will ultimately, for cancer and in health in general, see a digital information infrastructure built, whereby a patient comes in, they have cancer, and they're matched with nearest neighbor, another form of AI, to find the, their digital twins that have the lo- most like uh, features of every aspect, so that that can also be informative for uh, treatment and outcome. So that's not uh, necessarily going to help false um, uh, positives, but it will help in terms of uh, another way to come up with uh, suitable therapies, uh, which would be expected to ameliorate outcomes. So, so you mean? You know, do you mean? Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you, but just to clarify. No. Do you yeah. mean they're digital twins that somebody else who has the same cancer, a patient with the same, so that you have like a, like a little mini study right there, two arms, you know, try yeah. one thing, try another thing? Well, yeah, basically. Or the control uh, group let, who isn't sick. Uh, no, this is um, people like you. So instead of, uh, you know, that, that uh, um, community patients like me, this mm-hmm. is kind of like the patient like me, who is most like me, and what were their treatment and their outcomes? And if we start having a true learning system mm-hmm. across the planet, mm-hmm. that would be the dream, of course. But it's already being assembled uh, now in cancer, um, this, the beginnings of this. And so that's not only taking all the layers of data for each person, but then folding that in for uh, this, this new infrastructure to, you know, so that we, each help, we help each other. Mm-hmm. to inform a best therapy. So what we'll see is, you know, this gradual, pretty uh, rich, informative uh, progress uh, because cancer is such a challenging uh, condition and we need to use all the information out there that we can, whether it's everything on the individual or on, uh, you know, virtually all people with uh, different types of cancer uh, so that's, I think, where we're headed. Some of that's more short-term, of course, and then ultimately, you know, I think we we'll see um, this new resource built. You know, I think, I think, and you really you go into this in the book. Um, obviously, to fulfill that vision that you just articulated requires data cooperativity. It means that individual organizations share data, that individual people share data, and also that individual systems are able to speak to one another, right? Like there's a, there's a right. lot of uh, everything being able to talk to each other. And I don't want to get into the, pri- the privacy issue is one whole set of issues that you do get into in the book. But right now I'm, I'm just wondering, um, you know, I think we all felt so much excitement about the idea of introducing an electronic health record and how that was going to make us better as a healthcare system. And I, I would say it's fair to say there's been a lot of frustration around what we ended up with because it isn't cooperative. Do you, do you, and, and because, and I believe you say this in, in the book, because it turned out to be optimized for billing and not for health care. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, do you think we learned from that? Tragedy. Can we do better? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many you know, horrendous mistakes that have been made in health care. That may be right at the top, whereby... In the 90s, uh, companies like Epic and Cerner and all these others went ahead with systems that were basically spruce up billing without any regard to patients, for patients, or even clinicians. So this 
I think was an abject uh, failure um, to acknowledge what what are we doing here? You know, wh- why are we working in healthcare so we can have better billing? Right. And so what happened subsequently was, uh, you know, that this is the singular biggest reason why um, we've had further uh, marked erosion of the patient-clinician relationship. And it's really a serious hit. Um, but, you know, hopefully we can learn from this. I mean, similarly, as you well know, um, you know, back in early 2000s when the genome was cracked and all this great flurry of uh, genomic research was done and uh, 90x percent was done only in European ancestry. Right. Well, why did we blew that one? Right. So, you know, we made some big blunders, right? And hopefully it won't repeat like in the AI. We just can't do this thing again where, you know, you fixation on one ancestry. And we can't let this field be a economic um, centric engine. That's the last thing we need right now. So, you know, I, this is uh, some valuable lessons from some of the blatant failures that have occurred. Yeah. I, I, the, with the data, and 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 the 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 lack of diversified data at very at least and it's a huge problem it's a huge problem in genetics it's a huge problem in medicine but we know it's a problem and and we know how to fix it like i look at that and i think okay it is top of the list what we need to focus on but it's a fixable problem i think one of the things that frightens people about AI is that sort of black box experience where you can't backwards figure out what their what what biases are in it, and if we if the biases are baked in because of the rules or because of the data in the beginning, and you say this in the book, they're like that's the frightening thing because if one person makes a mistake because of their bias, they harm their patient, but if a program makes a mistake. It can be, you know, innumerable uh, people harmed. I was thinking about that. It's like, you know, it's 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 much harder than simply diversifying in, in a genetic sense. So let's say that you have a data set on blood pressure. So you're the cardiologist. So let's go to cardiology. It's not as simple, is it, as just getting the right people into the database? Because you you could have all sorts of genetic associations that are simply associations to more stressful lives or worse diets, right? Right. Yeah, no, I think there's quite a bit there. So firstly, um, in for algorithms, the problem is the human bias mm-hmm. that's fed in. So those inputs, you know, the... the, the the uh, the neural net is neutral. It doesn't have a bias it's, per se, but whatever inputs are, are put in and whatever ground truths determined by humans, uh, these are the problems that we have to reckon with. And there are a lot of efforts in AI to weed out bias, but that's um, a work in progress. Now, there's errors. Uh, that is, there's things that can happen to um, a neural net uh, along the way that are a problem like, you know, a glitch, like a software uh, glitch or malware, you know, some type of hacking. And what you're getting at there is that if that were to occur, it could harm a large number of people quickly if there was reliance on any particular um, AI tool 
for healthcare. So that's why even when these are validated, you know, with clinical environment and replicated and all the kinds of things that we'd like to see uh, to say it, it works, it, it helps people, it provides better outcomes, promotes health, all these good things. Well, it's not over there because we need to have these under surveillance always because all it takes uh, is something to interfere uh, with its performance, the software, and then, you know, it's off track and, and many people can, can be hurt. So it is, uh, as you say, it's an, a, a big amplification. You get all this big, enriched, augmented performance, but you also take a risk with that. Um, I I wanted to... I'm just to jump around a little bit here because there was an area I really was interested in that you cover a great deal in the book, which is um, discussion about nutrigenomics. And uh, I wrote about nutrigenomics in Scientific American back in 2007, and uh, short shortest version of the article was not ready for prime time. Um, and from what you still say in today. the book, still true today, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's gone almost nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yet. It's an it's an area that you can't help but feeling there's incredible potential there. And would you talk a little bit about your experience with the Israeli firm and the microbiome? Yeah, well, the uh, experience I had, you know, I, I also uh, wrote about it in the New York Times essay. Uh, they called the AI diet. I, I didn't call it. I called it deep diet in the book, but. Basically, uh, this was uh, the outgrowth of the Israeli work uh, in the Wiseman Institute led by Aaron Siegel, Aaron Elanov, and their colleagues. So it's really a classic study published in Cell a few years ago, uh, and that is up until that point. There was, a, there, there was this idea that there's a diet for all people, and there wasn't science to prove unequivocally that that was completely erroneous. And so what they did at Wiseman was they took now thousands of people and they gave them the exact amount of the same food that they ate at the exact same time and then they measured their glucose in their blood through a sensor and found that their glucose results were all over the map. And that means that our response to food is remarkably heterogeneous. And so if you and I ate the same food, my glucose might be 150 and yours would never budge over 90. And so uh, that experiment, which involved the gut microbiome data and physical activity and sleep and labs and everything you eat and drink, you know, for uh, a couple of weeks, I did that because I I found it fascinating. And uh, what I learned is I had glucose spikes and uh, a very substantial uh, proportion of people who are healthy without diabetes have glucose spikes. I didn't know I had those. Then I learned what drove those spikes and foods that I would never have suspected. Uh, and they have, of course, uh, a big machine learning ability to impute the foods that you would have spikes from or, or avoid. And what I learned, of course, was that foods that I particularly like uh, were some of the most incriminating ones were ones that I would never have thought of going near, like bratwurst, cheesecake, you know, things that I thought as a cardiologist were really bad for me. That would be ways I could, they got rated A+, plus, you know, <laughs> no glucose spike. 
So uh, it was really a, a learning experience. Um, there is no commercial uh, package to do this. It's, it's still uh, out there dangling. Um, the Israeli group had a spin-out company, Day Two, but they don't offer, you know, the glucose sensor and you know all the. It's a lot of work, by the way, to record all the stuff, everything you do for two weeks. I wouldn't want to have to go through it again, <laughs> frankly. Um, and it, that work is now being extended, Laura, because now um, the group in um, the UK, King's College, uh, Tim Spector and Project Sapiens, a big twin study that I'm sure you're familiar with, they have seen that now with triglyceride. <laughs> so where we're headed is that... Um, there's going to be a big uh, capability to determine the best foods for you to avoid these metabolic derangements, if you will. That doesn't mean that you should adhere to that diet because we don't know that it's going to prevent diabetes or prevent other illnesses in the future. That is going to take a while to prove or, or disprove. But in this intermediate state, we'll be able, if you're interested, uh, to find out uh, a diet that's uh, bespoke for you uh, with these uh, type of uh, surrogate endpoints. So it's really interesting. The case would never have been cracked without AI. Um, and I, the main reason I think, it, it, you know, in retrospect, we may move to a deep diet someday. Um, and we owe this analytical capability because, again, this is multimodal data, which is what humans couldn't do. That is, it took thousands of people with essentially what amounted to billions of data points to figure out that the gut microbiome was a big driver. Not the only one, but a big driver. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we're going to learn more about this. Um, you know, everything that's going to be assayed, whether it's you know, not just glucose and triglycerides, there'll be other things. We're going to learn how they vary. And I was hoping, interestingly, to see that the glucose and triglyceride track the same in people. No, they're completely different. So um, this is a work in progress. Um, I just think it's interesting. It has nothing to do with your genome. So that kind of puts the nutrigenomic story out to, you know, uh, holding zone, whatever, maybe, yeah. maybe the rest, I don't unless, know. Unless your uh, genome turns out to have something to do with your microbiome, which is an impossible. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's likely there's got to be something in the genome about how we metabolize. Or unless things. your genome has something to do. Yeah, so it's all going to work together, right? Because you're going to be like, what yeah. are your tastes there? So, so here's the thing. It's such fascinating science. There's two things. There's two things I'd like to go in a little deeper on what you just said. One is... Uh, I think nutrigenomics right now is an example of what I think of as the not-so-fast Jack issue, which is that here we are talking about this brand-new, fascinating, early-stage, intriguing stuff, and they're already out there selling bogus versions of it. And, yeah, totally bogus. And, and here's the yep. thing for me, and I want to ask you this. I live in fear. I am so skeptical of new silver bullet companies coming out and saying, test for this, test for that. And I, I, I really try to, to, to keep an open mind because I'm deeply afraid that someday the real thing is going to come along and I'm going to dismiss it out of hand. So you seem to me to be very much able to uh, balance the two, your excitement about the future and your, your, your caution, like, like, 
you're not in, which is great, right? Like I think that's one of the reasons why people turn to you is that you're not like simply in one camp or the other camp, which many people are. But I wonder about this. What worries you more? Coming out with things that encourage premature marketing or stifling it? Which one of those do you worry about more? Oh, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought about that. I, I worry about both. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think we don't want to stifle innovation. Um, you know, so, you know, a great example today, um, there was a story uh, in Wired about using AI to uh, evaluate the quality of eggs for IVF. And it's about a company in Toronto, um, Future Fertility, I guess is the name. And they have no published data. And they're already doing this in Canada. Well, of course, it's interesting to point out that the way quality has been assessed of eggs has been very subjective and, you know, highly erroneous. And um, a lot of eggs are unused and discarded. And IVF, as you well know, is remarkably expensive and inefficient. And so it could turn out AI to be a great boon to use this, no less also to select embryos. Uh, so I look at this and I say, hmm, this is a really good idea. But I also remain suspect of this company because of their commercial motives without publishing the data. Right. And that's why, you know, I got into the, you know, I, I was initially impressed with Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, that she had a really good idea and I wanted her to succeed. And then I realized she wasn't going to publish anything and that this whole thing was a farce. And so... I have uh, a real uh, reverence for transparency and peer-reviewed publications. And so I hold my judgment about a company because of their motives until all the data are out there. Yeah. I, your, your book ends with something of a call to activism for doctors. They're sort of saying, we want better results. We want this. To, this can go in, in a good direction or a bad direction, part of this is going to have to be activism. I often find, I have students, I have people listening, I'm asking that of people, but what do you see the healthcare person being able to contribute here? How, how does somebody listening today who's in the field move things forward in a positive rather than a negative direction? Well, I'm so glad you asked that, Laura, because I think this is the essential uh, bifurcation. So just as you asked about how did we let these electronic health records go forward? And doctors essentially uh, didn't rebel. And the same thing when Medicare uh, introduced relative value units. And the same thing when health maintenance organizations were introduced. So if you look back at all the transformative in a negative way, the things that occurred, uh, there has been little resistance, little activism among doctors. And in recent times, we've seen perhaps one of the greatest examples of doctors coming together, and this was the uh, result of the uh, National Rifle Association saying to doctors, stay in your lane after... Yeah, the response uh, to that was beautiful. Yeah, it was fantastic, but it's the first time in history that you saw that kind of vehement, you know, uh, solidarity extraordinary response across all disciplines of medicine and interestingly you know led largely by uh, women physicians 
uh, of all kinds. Uh, not some, some, but not nearly as many as, as men. So whether that's because they've had to deal with health inequities throughout their career and have been, you know, uh, made into leaders uh, because of that, some, you know, to speculate, but it's been great to see. And the question now with social media and people willing to stand up uh, in the profession, are we at a different time than we were when all these other things happened and essentially uh, we just rolled over? So I'm hoping uh, that that will be the case, that we will stand up for the gift of time that we're going to get out of this. That's the biggest thing we're going to get, not just an accuracy of a scan or a rapid um, uh, ability to look at a set of data or even, you know, liberation from keyboards. Those are all nice things. The biggest thing is that we get back, um, you know, what I call deep empathy. Uh, you've mentioned deep listening, the whole human patient doctor relationship or patient health care professionals that we get back to what was, it was all about. Why did we go into this profession? So that is the fond hope. I recognize fully that if we don't take this activism, the medical community doesn't unite to take on the opportunity to seize it, that we can make things worse. Because the default mode is the more productivity and efficiency, the more, see more patients more quickly, make more revenue. You know, that's the business of medicine that we have essentially fell into over decades. We've got to turn back, you know, the, this back to the future opportunity is, is enormous, but it won't happen by accident. I think that's so true, and I hope reading this book, and I suggest to people that are listening that you do go read this book, because we don't know exactly what form it's going to take, but this is the future, and it is coming. Like, the choice isn't whether or not we want to live in that world. You know, I think that's one mistake we make about new technology is that we view the choice as being between do we want to live in this world or do we want to live in the world we grew up in? That's not actually the choice that's given to you. Keep going backwards uh, is not an option in the world, right? So we're going forward into a new world that's going to have incredible capabilities of intelligent computer programs and deep learning and huge data sets and big science, like all that's happening. And what we can do is to try and shape it into the, the, the a positive and to minimize the negatives. So I, I, I think this book grasped that truth. I learned so much from it. And um, I hope, I hope the future looks more like the one you envision. I really do. Well, I hope, I really appreciate that, Laura. What a great discussion with you. I, I, I think there is something here that's unique that we may not see uh, for generations to come. And I hope we don't miss the opportunity. Yeah. Second that so much. All right. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you all for listening. Uh, go to the BeagleLanda.com, subscribe, follow me on Twitter, all that great stuff. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.